0: We made one uh, small change. I thought I was going to get off light this morning with just a couple of verses, but uh, Nathan asked me to go ahead and uh, also read Isaiah 53. So we'll start at Isaiah 52, verse 13, which is found in your pew Bible on page 613, and we'll read all the way through Isaiah 53. Hear the word of the Lord. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever.
1: Let's pray together as we prepare to come before God's Word together. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would be with us as we look to your Word, that you would guide us by your Spirit, that you would humble us before your Word, but that you would also make us confident even as we prepare to sit beneath it, that you would be reminding us that your voice, your word is powerful. It is by your voice and your word that you called everything into being, into existence. It was the voice of your Son who spoke and he called the blind to see and the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. It was by the power of his word that he spoke even into the tombs and raised the dead to life. Father, give us this confidence this morning that your word never returns to you void, it never returns to you empty without accomplishing the purposes for which you set it forth. And so we pray this morning that by your word, you would wake the dead this morning, that you would comfort the struggling, that you would affirm those who are doubting and skeptical of your love, that you would take us all to Jesus to remind us even as we just prayed that we are far more broken than we could ever imagine, but we are also far more loved because of Jesus than we could have ever dared dream possible. So, Father, take us and lift our eyes to see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our salvation, for it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, all throughout the fall, we've been, um, we've been looking at the letter of James, but we're going to take a break uh, for the next few weeks leading up to Christmas, and we're going to spend some time reflecting on Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 52 verse 13 through Isaiah 53 verse 12. And this morning, we're just going to be looking, even though I had Trace read the whole thing, we're just going to be looking... At that first section of verses, Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 15. Um, and it's because these, I had them read all those verses because these verses all really go together. You can think about them like a song, right? And this song has five distinct stanzas in it, um, each with a particular theme about the coming Messiah. Um, and this morning we're going to consider together. Christmas and the Puzzling Servant in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. And then in the next stanza, we're going to talk about Christmas and the Upside-Down Servant, and then Christmas and the Sacrificial Servant, and then Christmas and the Voluntary Servant. And then finally, when we gather together on Christmas morning, we're going to reflect on Christmas and the Exalted Servant. Um, And now, I've really been looking forward to this series. So, I really do want to just jump right in and start talking about Christmas and this puzzling servant. I have a total of three games on my phone, on my iPhone. Uh, Not a lot, I know. Some people have many more than that. Um, But um, I have one that's a word game called PlexiWord, another one that's called Picto word, and then I have a daily crossword puzzle, uh, that, that's on my phone. And, you know, I, they're all word game puzzles, and it's all very nerdy. I know that those are the games that I have on my phone, but I really like puzzles, and I really like word puzzles. Um, you could also think, for purposes of this illustration, you could think in your own mind of a, the classic jigsaw puzzle. It doesn't really matter, but a puzzle is all about how, figuring out how Different pieces go together and fit together, right? Initially, the pieces or the words, they appear disjointed. Um, it's hard or difficult to see the connection in those different pieces and how they fit together. And the puzzle is solved when you're able to bring what first seems irreconcilable Or when you're able to bring together what seems to be contrasting and make it fit together in a meaningful way. Isaiah wrote in verse 13, Behold my servant. And what he's saying is, he's saying, Look at, consider, right? Fix your eyes on this servant because he wants us to see and he wants us to wonder at this puzzling servant. That he lifts up before us, because you see, he's a, on the one hand, he's saying about the servant, he acts wisely, and he's high and he's lifted up and he deserves to be exalted. He will be exalted, and it's a picture of triumph and of success on the one hand, but on the other hand, in these verses, Isaiah is also saying he will be broken, he will be beaten. He will be marred beyond human semblance. It's a picture of crushing defeat, right, and rejection. And that's the puzzle here. How can this servant who lived wisely, who lived perfectly and therefore should be loved by God and accepted by God, how is it that his life also appears at the same time to be proof of God's rejection of him, right? This is one of life's great puzzles. How can real suffering and real pain and an experience of the hardness of life, how can that be compatible? And how can it fit together with a loving and powerful God? It's two contrasting pictures that seem irreconcilable to us. And that's the puzzle we're challenged with as we behold the servant. And so what I want to do is I want us to walk through this puzzle in three steps and three points. And I want us to talk about these three things, a troubling perspective of life's troubles. And then I want us to talk about a limited perspective of life's troubles. And finally, how to bring the perspective of the cross to life's troubles. So first, a troubling perspective of life's troubles. Um, This is this may be hard for some of us, um, I understand, but we really need to be honest with ourselves about this troubling perspective. Um, Life's hardness, it's brokenness, it's sorrows, it's evils. How do we reconcile that with a God who is loving and all-powerful? And that might be very very well a question that some of you are wrestling with this very morning, right? Um, But if not, I can assure you of this. It is a question that your friends are struggling with and asking. It's an extremely honest, and difficult question. And I think we need to consider this troubling perspective both globally and personally. And we might as well face this globally uh, troubling perspective by hearing it stated by one of the leading critics of Christianity today, a guy named Bart Ehrman, who's a professor at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, He's written several books, one of those being entitled God's Problem. And here's what, what Ehrman says. He says, my view is that it is impossible to reconcile the pain and misery all about us. The millions of children in Africa dying of AIDS and malaria, the millions of others dying because they are forced to drink unclean water, the countless others dying from natural disasters, hurricanes, tsunamis, droughts, famines. So he's saying, my view is that it's impossible to reconcile the pain and misery all about us. And then he concludes this quote by saying this, If there is a God who is good and all-powerful and in charge of the world. He's saying the puzzle is irreconcilable. The presence of evil and suffering in the world can't be reconciled with a loving and all-powerful God. Here's the argument. Either God is loving but not powerful enough to stop the suffering. Or God is powerful but certainly not loving Because he allows suffering. He allows people to suffer. It's a globally troubling perspective. It's a philosophically troubling perspective. Why would a God who is loving, perfectly loving and all-powerful allow suffering? That's an extremely honest and difficult question. Um, And it's the puzzle. We struggle to reconcile these two things. difficult to see how they can be compatible. And for a few moments... It'll be okay for us to sit in this kind of tension, and that's where I want to leave you uh, for now, but I also want to bring you to this troubling perspective. We need to bring this troubling perspective down into our very real and present personal experience. Some of you, I know, are in the midst of life's troubles right now, and you're suffering. And some of you feel like your life is just breaking to pieces right now and crumbling before you, and you're experiencing very real hurt in your lives. For others of you, you feel like you're doing great right now, um, and there doesn't appear to be any trauma in your life at the moment, but you know people who are suffering right now. I mean, how can you come alongside these kind of people who are suffering in life's real troubles and offer any real hope in those circumstances. I also want to add this. If you think your life is great right now, it probably is. You know, I'm not doubting you, Um, but just give it a little bit of time. Um, It's a depressing thought, but pain and suffering are unavoidable in this life, So even if things are great right now, you aren't living in reality if you feel like you can ignore what we're talking about this morning. This troubling perspective will come and deal with us all personally. And I want us to at least be honest enough in this first point to admit that when we're personally confronted with suffering, our question isn't really all that far removed from Bart Ehrman's question. When financial hardship comes upon us, when there are relational trials, when a spouse has been unfaithful, when you have a child who is caught in the web of addiction, right? When you experience death and loss in this life of a loved one, right, when there's chronic pain and illness in your life, when you're facing difficulty and frustrated happiness in your vocation, um, when you're dealing with soul-shaking disappointments in life and pain or the terrible baggage of your past, when that crashes into our lives personally, what is often the first question on our lips? I mean, isn't it why? Why is this happening? Right? Why would God allow this to happen to me? Why would he let me come into this suffering? And you are not alone in asking that question. God's people have always struggled with this puzzle. Right? Just listen to the prayers that are recorded in the Psalms for you. Psalm 10 verse 1, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 42, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Psalm 43, you are God, my stronghold, why have you rejected me? Psalm 44, awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? It's personally troubling. It feels at times like we've been abandoned, that we've been forgotten. It feels like God has turned his back on us in the very moment of our need, like God has walked away from all his promises to love and deliver us. See, why is a very good and very honest question, but I want you to stay with me here just for a moment. Why do we ask why, okay? Around ages three to four, I'm guessing, I can't remember with my own children, but somewhere in there they learn a very troubling uh, word. And that that word is why. Um, because with that word, they find out that they can prolong any conversation um, that they're in just by asking why. Um, it's because why is a question that really digs beneath, right? It, it pushes deeper beneath and beyond the surface. Um, and I'll give you an example of a real conversation I had with one of my kids. Um, one morning, this child who will remain unnamed walked into my room and saw me putting on my shoes. And she asked me, you know, what you doing, daddy? And I said, putting on my shoes. And uh, she said, why? And I said, because I'm getting ready to go to work. And she said, why? "Um, Because that's my job. Why? Because that's what I get paid to. Uh, to do, right? That's how I provide for you. And I'm getting a little more stern as these questions go along. And, um, this is how, how you have a roof over your head, clothes, food, all that kind of stuff. Why? Because it's what God called me to. (laughs) Why? And at that point, I I call out for Jennifer, can you please come in here and help me with this child? Um, (laughs) and tell me about this. Confirm my calling in life. Um, You know, in in like 30 seconds is all that conversation took, right? But in 30 seconds, I went from putting on my shoes to trying to defend my call in life to a three-year-old. We instinctively ask why questions because we're trying to get deeper, And we're trying to understand, and we're trying to solve the puzzle and make sense out of life's troubles, right? Why do we ask why? Why do we feel the need to go deeper? At this moment, let me just offer you this this very simple answer. We ask why. Because we're human beings, and instinctively and deep down, we know that pain is not right, right? That the brokenness that we experience in this world, is an intr- it's an intruder into this world. We cry out, why? Because we know this is not the way this world was meant to be. Again, it's okay for us to sit in this tension for a moment. The sorrow, the suffering, the pain, life's troubles, they force us to ask the why questions. Because we know this isn't what life was meant to be. But let's move on second now to consider a limited perspective in life's troubles. Um, we bring an incredibly limited perspective to our suffering and to the trouble of life. Um, now, now listen, this morning I had like four different stories I was going to share with you. Um, and then, because I, I wanted you to see this limited perspective from all these different angles, but that would have taken way too much time and I love you too much to, to make you sit through all of that. But let me let me just... Let me share with you two stories here. Um, Two stories that for me have provided incredible personal comfort to me um, by reminding me of my very limited perspective in my suffering. In Mark 5, there's this story where a synagogue ruler named Jairus came to Jesus. And he came to Jesus begging Jesus to come and heal his little 12-year-old daughter who was dying. And so Jesus went with Jairus. But on the way, Jesus stopped. He was traveling in this big crowd, and someone had touched his clothes and was immediately healed, a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And he stopped at that moment and began to look for this woman. I mean, even his disciples were growing so frustrated with him, right? They were saying, in all this crowd, how could you stop and look for one person? But he did. And finally, when he found her, he stopped to have a conversation with her. And during this conversation, servants from Jairus' house came up and said to him, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, listen. Listen. Can you imagine what Jairus must have felt at that moment? Especially with his limited perspective at that time. I mean, Jesus did. I mean, Jesus knew what Jairus had to have been thinking. Something like this. It's too late. Jesus could have healed my daughter, but he stopped for this woman and now my daughter is dead. Maybe Jairus was thinking, this is cruel malpractice. Stopping to heal a chronic issue when this little girl had an acute crisis and was dying. Jesus knew what Jairus was feeling and what he was thinking. It's why when Jairus heard the news, Jesus immediately turned to him and said, do not fear, only believe. See, Jairus didn't know. He didn't know what Jesus knew. His perspective was limited. He had come to Jesus for a healing, but Jesus wanted to give him a resurrection from the dead, which was far better. It's humbling to realize in your suffering, when you become so anxious and so fearful and so angry that it's really because you're so certain how your life should go that you're certain that Jesus has gotten something wrong in your life. Surely Jairus felt that. And I think one reason God has given us this story is to say to us, your perspective is limited. Why would you ever want to hurry someone this powerful and this loving, someone who longs to give you not just a healing, but a resurrection from the dead? Another story that's brought much comfort to me is the story of Joseph in Genesis. Um, many of you are familiar with that story. A great story about this guy, Joseph, who was so arrogant in the way he treated his brothers that when his brothers had an opportunity to sell him as a slave, they jumped at that opportunity, right? And then as a slave, still nothing went right for Joseph. He was thrown in prison for a crime he didn't commit, so something like 20 years of Joseph's life, Joseph's life passed. 20 years. Where was God in that? Right? But you keep reading the story in Genesis, and you realize by the end that God was saving Joseph. He was saving Joseph from his arrogance. And God was saving his brothers from their evil and their violence and their bitterness, and God was saving Joseph's family that would have perished in a famine. All those years had gone by, and Joseph, he only just started to see a piece of the story come together before he died. He said at the very end of Genesis to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are are today. But listen, even with all of that, Joseph's perspective was still limited. He couldn't have seen that God brought his family to Egypt to turn them into a nation under slavery. And from that nation in slavery to raise up a deliverer named Moses who would deliver that nation, but finally to raise up from that nation another deliverer who would come not just to deliver Israel, but to deliver the world. Our perspective is extremely limited in life's troubles You don't know how God is using the trouble and suffering in your life, in the lives of others, or in his unfolding plan of redemptive history. Even if you see a piece of his purpose, you cannot see the whole in this life. Listen, if we're really finite creatures, that is, we're limited, limited in our knowledge, limited in our understanding and our wisdom. I mean, doesn't it make perfect sense that our perspective would be limited? I mean, if that's who we are, it should make sense that there would be questions in this life that we don't have answers for. When one of my daughters was two years old, I took her out in the backyard one evening because it was a a beautiful, bright, full moon that evening. And we walked out, and I was pointing out the moon to her, and I remember her, as I'm holding her in my, my arms, her stretching her little hand out and saying to me, Daddy, I want to touch it. Now, listen, I didn't panic in that moment. Um, I didn't become worried about her depth perception uh, or her mental development at that moment uh, because she didn't know what I knew that the moon was 238,000 miles or whatever it is away. I didn't panic. I just figured she's two. And as a two-year-old, your world is limited to what you can comprehend. And listen, the gap between her comprehension and mine as as an adult has to be a thousand times smaller than the gap between my comprehension of the world as a finite creature and the understanding of an infinite God. In suffering, God is often pounding the self-righteousness out of our hearts, That assumes we know exactly what we need. He won't be hurried in the gifts he brings to his children through suffering in our lives, in the lives of others, in his larger redemptive purposes. And I'm not suggesting in this that it's easy to wait, but we have to remind ourselves in the midst of our suffering that our perspective is very limited. Okay, finally, we're all probably wondering what all this has to do with the first stanza of Isaiah's song in Isaiah 52. So that's what I want to talk about in this last point, bringing the perspective of the cross to life's troubles. We have real questions about why God would allow the people he loves to suffer. How would Isaiah respond to that question? I think he would say something like this. Behold the servant, look at Jesus, consider Jesus. He would say, "Have you seen this man, high and exalted, broken and defeated, successful and triumphant, crushed and rejected? He came and he lived the perfect life, right One who fulfilled every law of god 's, the one the only one." ever to perfectly love God with his entire being, the only one to perfectly love his neighbor as himself. He lived wisely, as verse 13 says. His life was a life of perfect beauty. He alone deserved to be high and lifted up and exalted. He was the apple of his father's eye. I mean, do you remember the scene when Jesus was, the beginning of his public ministry when he was baptized in the Jordan River. The heavens were torn open, the gospel writers tell us. And a voice came from heaven. And that voice was Jesus' Father, God Himself saying, This, you are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I mean, look, it was a picture of a father just doting over his son, beaming with love and complete satisfaction in his son, confirming his total pleasure in the life of his son. So what was the very next thing that happened in the life of Jesus? Do you remember? Jesus' father sent him into the wilderness, into the desert to suffer for 40 days of hunger and fasting, for 40 days of being assaulted and tempted by Satan, this extreme, painful, and terrible suffering and the almighty, perfect love of God have always gone together. Isaiah wrote that people would be astonished when they looked at Jesus in verse 14. This phrasing in verse 14 that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind here's what isaiah was saying jesus experienced such intense suffering and torture and disfigurement that if you saw him you wouldn't just act ask is this the servant who acted wisely if you saw him you would ask is that even human Beyond human semblance, the puzzling servant, loved by God, crushed beyond recognition. And for now, Isaiah just gives us a hint in this song, a hint that he will soon develop much further. But he's giving us a clue to the question why. Why would God allow his beloved son to come into this world and suffer so terribly and die. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Right, he would cleanse many nations with his blood. It would be through his suffering that God would redeem the world. He came and he was torn to unrecognizable shreds. He came the only man who truly ever deserved not to die. And he willingly gave up his life for you in your place. And it's always been this way. That's why I had so much trouble narrowing down some of the stories that I would share with you. Because God's, God brings salvation through judgment. That's how he always does it. He brings deliverance through suffering. You know, earlier when I was quoting... Some of the different psalms where you hear this this word, why, on the lips of the psalmist. Um, I did leave out one very important psalm, and that was Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that, of course, is the psalm Jesus quoted when he was hanging from the cross. You know, just prior to that, Pilate had led Jesus before the crowd in a purple robe that was surely stuck to the skin on his back as the blood seeped through and a crown of thorns. And Pilate led him before the crowd. And what did he say to that crowd? Behold the man. Look at this man. See this servant. Look at this puzzling servant, loved by God and forsaken by God. He had come to die to sprinkle many nations with his blood, to save the world through his death. You know, we'll continue to experience suffering and sorrow in this life, and we'll continue to struggle with it. There will be unanswered questions about the struggling in this life. But you can take comfort this morning from this puzzling servant. God's wise love in all its mystery is compatible, is reconcilable with suffering. Don't say to God, if you loved me, I wouldn't be suffering like this. Lift your eyes, Isaiah is saying, and behold this man, behold the servant. John Stott wrote this in his book, The Cross of Christ. He wrote, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it, that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. He writes, that is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death and suffered for us. Listen, why do we call Christmas merry, right? Why do we refer to it as a cheerful and happy day? Because the puzzling servant that Isaiah promised here, he came. And I want you to think about just a few things as we close. In this life, as we suffer, we often feel forsaken. We feel abandoned we feel forgotten, but would you pause with Isaiah and behold this servant? He was really and truly forsaken and abandoned and forgotten by his Father on the cross so that in your suffering, you could only feel forsaken. He was really forsaken so that now you could know you can never be forsaken because of what Jesus has done for you. And all the suffering in your life will be used for his redemptive purpose in your life, in the lives of others, in his unfolding plan of redemption. Are you tempted to question God's love? Isaiah would say, behold this servant. He knew why he came into this world. He came for you. And while the Bible lets us sit in tension, how could God be loving and powerful and there be real evil and suffering in this world? At least you can know this. The Bible wasn't written to answer that question. It was written to answer a different question altogether. And that question is this. What is the loving and all-powerful God doing about the evil and suffering in this world? He has come to conquer evil and suffering through the suffering of His own Son, whom He willingly gave for you. He came to redeem this world to one day, someday, give you and me, those who believe in Him, the world as it was meant to be, a world without pain, without suffering, without tears, without death, and without mourning. He cannot be more committed to you than He is right now at this moment. He cannot love you more than he loves you right now at this moment if you rest in Jesus, his servant. And finally, let me just say this. Christmas is merry because Jesus, he has set you free through his suffering. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you could hear your Father in heaven say about you, You are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And now you have been freed to go the way of your Savior, to become a puzzle yourself to the world, to suffer patiently under the hand of a loving God, to suffer for others just as he suffered for you, to suffer a little for him because he suffered ultimately for you. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this Word from Isaiah, this prophecy that came hundreds of years before Jesus took on flesh and walked this earth, this prophecy that proclaimed what He would come to do, how He would come and fulfill Your law perfectly and also come to suffer and to be crushed under Your hand for our transgressions, for our iniquities. Father, we pray that you would give us humility, that you would work humility in our lives, even as we consider how limited our perspective is in our suffering, even as we consider the ways in which you bring about redemption and healing and life through suffering. You've done it in Jesus' life for us, And you will use the suffering in our lives for your good, for our good. Father, we pray that you would help us to see this in order that we would wait patiently in our suffering under your loving hand, in order that we might learn how to suffer a little for the one who suffered ultimately for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.